welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Last week, I explored a book that is firmly embedded in the English language and our wider culture. One of the most quoted texts of all time, one of the books given to guests on the BBC's Desert Island Discs. This week, I am looking at a rather more disruptive text, published in 1986, and following in the footsteps of the author's first bestseller, The Selfish Gene. Until I revisited Richard Dawkins for this podcast, I had not realised that The Blind Watchmaker was only his third book. My brief stint at The Good Book Guide, the bi-monthly book catalogue which introduced me not only to Dorothy Dunnett, as recounted a fortnight ago, also introduced me to the world of popular science. I had managed to skate through school with only the most minimal acquaintance with any scientific inquiry. I was booted out of biology in my very first term at Rodine, why I still have no idea, and it was made clear to my mother after my first year of O-level chemistry that Dr Carpenter had no intention of including me in any further classes, having hurled a board eraser in my general direction after a very messy engagement with chromatography. I had to do one science at O-level, so the short straw went to physics. As with maths, I had a reasonably patient teacher and I squeaked my way through to a C. So, accepting that I was never going to be any good scientifically, I made my way through sixth form and university without troubling myself any further with scientific or mathematical thought. The Good Book Guide employed specialist reviewers to make their way through eight to ten books every couple of months and submit one longer review for the best of the selection and several enthusiastic blurbs for the rest of the selection. We had some great reviewers, including a young Neil Gaiman just before he found fame and made a fortune with a Sandman sequence. Our sciences guy was an astrophysicist and academic, John Gribben, whose own output was impressive even then. I remember reading two of his picks, Chaos Theory by James Glyke, and The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins's book, just coming out in paperback in 1987. At the time, I lived in a flat in Kentish Town, near the crest of a hill. Our guest room doubled as my study. I had a red carpet, a red table and bench, and a sofa bed. The window faced south, London unfurling from the Nat West Tower to Crystal Palace in the south and Euston, with what had been the post office but is now the BT Tower. I remember sitting there reading into the night, my world turning upside down. First of all, why hadn't anyone ever explained to us schoolchildren that this was what science really was? Not doodles of desiccated leaves and endless labelling of diagrams of test tubes, but enormous, life-altering ideas. And beyond that, the rich and extraordinary importance of the whole nature of scientific inquiry, defining questions, hypothesising, identifying and collecting evidence, data analysis, examination, reflection, evaluation. Gleick and Dawkins both presented not just huge theories, but the systems and approaches that help us puny humans grasp how these theories underpin the myriad ways in which our world operates. Whilst reading these books, I also moved jobs writing for the staff magazine of an organisation of engineers whose role was to inspect ships and increasingly industrial plant and factories for insurance purposes. 
In the midst of writing puff pieces celebrating long-serving colleagues and their hobbies, mainly cricket and train sets, I was thrown Juicy Bones, a piece about the investigation into the loss of the Derbyshire, the largest British ship ever to be lost at sea, in the midst of a typhoon in the Pacific south of Japan. The loss was subject to legal wrangling as it could not, at the time, be established whether the sinking of the boat was due to structural failure or human error. It was a sensitive case for my expert colleagues, for if the sinking had been due to structural failure, then their insurance surveys may not have been sufficiently rigorous. Alongside this and other stories about the more complex equipment and activities of various plants around the world, the first computers arrived in the office. We got Max and were sent off for a week of training in Quark Express, uh, desktop publishing software. We were so cutting edge, if only I had known it. For the first time, science was becoming embedded in my life, both as the subject of my work and in the way it shaped my daily routines and tasks at work. Gleick's exploration of the chaos theory added to a sense of the immense changes that were upon us. Even as I was writing retirement notices for people who had worked for 40 or even 50 years for the same company, I knew that people of my generation were much less likely to stay in one workplace. My working life has encompassed six offices and 11 schools, as well as freelance gigs. The longest I have spent in a single job has been nine years. But what really captivated me was Dawkins' explanation of evolution and his refuting of what he clearly thought was woolly theological theorising about the origins of the earth, of life, of humanity. First of all, Dawkins is an engaging writer. In addition to clear, accessible prose, his expertise is immediately visible in his tone without being pompous or patronising. He genuinely wants his readers to understand and enjoy the ideas and concepts that he needs to share. There is sharpness, there is wit, sometimes at the expense of those who would challenge or question his views and interpretation. I think the point at which I was really won over was the moment in Chapter 2 when Dawkins unpicks the work of Hugh Montefiore, then Bishop of Birmingham. Dawkins describes a recent book in which Montefiore makes, to quote Dawkins, a sincere and honest attempt to update natural theology. The biologist then goes on to demolish Montefiore's train of logic, which he calls the extremely weak argument from personal incredulity. An example of this is Montefiore's inability to understand why polar bears are white, because as far as the bishop sees it, they do not need to be white. Dawkins rewrites Montefiore thus. I personally, off the top of my head, sitting in my study, never having visited the Arctic, never having seen a polar bear in the wild and having been educated in classical literature and theology, have not so far managed to think of a reason why polar bears might benefit from being white. Much of the book is written in this mischievous and vivacious vein. And alongside that, there are evocative passages, such as when Dawkins in Panama watches as a seething colony of army ants marches past him for hours. 
As a child in Africa, he had, he reports, been more afraid of driver ants, the cousins of the Latin American army ants, than of lions or crocodiles. But now, armed with his understanding of evolution, of the power of our genetic inheritance, watching out for the queen of the stream of Panamanian ants, he is awed and, as he says, transfigured. His understanding enhanced by seeing the way in which the worker ants protected their queen, the repository of the master DNA of the whole colony. Dawkins swept me up and along as he explored how computers can reveal to us the tweaks and adjustments that can lead to evolutionary alteration, the complexity of the workings of an eye, the extraordinary development of echolocation in bats, the fallibility and misinterpretations of earlier scientists, the fragility of concepts such as success and power. Woven into his work were literary allusions to Blake, to Shakespeare, to the Bible itself. I lost the thread. I skipped sections. But when I reached the end of the book, I went back and reread, and this time focused harder on the mysterious threads of DNA and selection that he described, and found that I had taken a journey from which there was no return. He directly engages with concepts of creation and God, and for me, the clincher was Dawkins' takedown of the idea that God or some other intelligent designer set up what Dawkins describes as the machinery of replication and replicator power that made cumulative selection and hence all evolution possible. Dawkins identifies the laziness of this perspective. If one regards a supernatural being as the originator of the mechanisms that create life, then the question arises, what was the origin of this originator? And he uses Hamlet's discussion with Polonius as the marker for this line of inquiry. Hamlet teases Polonius in Act 3, Scene 2, as they affect to see clouds in the shape of a whale, a camel and a weasel. Dawkins took the trope, of the monkeys typing randomly, eventually managing to construct a coherent line from Shakespeare, and used it to postulate a similar approach for natural selection. He does have caveats. He does explain his position. But nonetheless, it has been attacked by supporters of intelligent design, seeking to claim that Dawkins is more Polonius than Hamlet, duped by wordplay and over-enamoured of his own rhetoric. But what some people see as reductionism ad absurdio seemed then, and seems now, a simple solution, all the more elegant and plausible for its simplicity. At the time that I was reading Dawkins, I was also intrigued by comparative mythology, the commonalities and disparities that run through the legends and tales that we have told for millennia to explain, to explore the mysteries of our world, summer, winter, rain, snow, the creation. And I also had my first encounters with the Annal School of History through Fernand Brodel. Freed from the constraints of school and university, Dancing to the limited educational tunes of A-levels and a chronological romp through English literature with a little side excursion into US writers of the 1920s, I was a voracious and eclectic reader. I wanted to know all the things, and one of the biggest things was the whole God question. 
The blind watchmaker opened for me the door on a wider world, along with a host of other unaligned ideas, stories and theories that gradually came together and began to form a richer, larger frame of reference. I discovered a hunger for knowledge about all sorts of random things that has not abated yet. And though I still find myself skipping sections and skimming complicated formulae and abstruse terminology, I also continue to read books about DNA, about the brain, about medicine and psychology, economics and mathematics, however much they make my brain ache. Join me next week for the last of the big 19th century novelists that I will cover. No, not Jane Austen, although I love her. Not Tolstoy, although I adored War and Peace. Instead, I will be taking a look at a lesser-known novel by the Victorian novelist Anthony Trollope. Is he Popenjoy? Join me then. <laughs>